we're going to have the rest of our main Bible reading now. So we're going to pick it up, Isaiah chapter 7. Again, if you want to follow, it's around page 571 of the Church Bibles. And we're going to read all the way to chapter 10, verse 4. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit in the upper pool on the highway to the washer field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of those two smouldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, for it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years Ephraim will be broken to pieces, so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask for a sign of the Lord your God, that it be as deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the end that is at the end of the streams of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the deep ravines, and in the clefts of the rocks, and on all the thorn bushes, and on all the pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hard beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. Everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose, 
and where sheep tread. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Mahashalahashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahashalahashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh, that flows gently and rejoice over, resin in the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on the armour, on your armour, and be shattered. Strap on your armour, and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy, all that this people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offence, and a rock of stumbling to both house of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom, for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honoured man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are gilded by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, consumes briars and thorns, it kindles in the thickets, the thickets of the forest, and they roll upwards in a column of smoke. Uh, through the wrath of the Lord it hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire, no one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. And all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writer who keeps writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may take the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners, or fall among the slain. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. We'll do keep that open. We're going to be looking at that together. Just to say, there is an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so do make use of that. And there will be an opportunity for any questions or comments at the end. So bear that in mind as we go through. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and sovereign over us. And therefore we pray now in our response to your word that we would vindicate your character by listening, uh, trusting and obeying. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we read through the book of Isaiah, there will be various parts 
that you will probably find familiar. And there are two examples in our reading this morning. So there's Isaiah 9 and the bit about for to us a child is born. Well, that would be familiar. It's read every Christmas at carols by candlelight across the country. The other example is just a single verse. It's there in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That will be a text quoted by Matthew in his Gospel concerning the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. It's a prophecy about Jesus who will be born of a virgin, God with us. However, when we read the surrounding verses, as we have just done, we come to realise that this child was actually born in the days of Ahaz. Let's pick it up again from verse 14, so you can see. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. <coughs> he shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now the two kings in question, they were introduced to us at the beginning of the chapter as the king of Syria and the king of Israel. And so what we're told is that while this child is still a child, both Syria and Israel will be destroyed. And so the king in question must have been born in this period of history, in the days of Ahaz. Now that can put a bit of a spanner in the works. For the verse that we thought we understood as being a prophecy about Jesus is actually about a child that was born some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, I appreciate that when you first hear that, it can be a bit unsettling. A verse that we thought we understood, that identified for us Jesus born of a virgin as God with us, actually seems to be about something else. About another child, about events that happened long before his coming. Yet at the same time, Matthew is happy to use this verse in his Gospel in connection with the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. Now at this point, we could decide just to carry on thinking about this verse as we always have. But this actually has become an exercise in listening to God, to understand how he speaks, how he tells us about himself, how we can learn about him 
and listen to what he is saying and what he is doing. And as we shall see, when we do that, we end up in a much better place than when we don't. Now this whole section, there are actually a number of children that are talked about. Four, in fact. And in many ways, it's, it's these four children that bring a unity to this section. The four children are Shear Jashub, Emmanuel, Mahashalahashbaz, and the fourth in chapter 9 is the child that is born to us. So let's have a look at each child in turn before we see how the whole thing fits together. Okay? So the first child is called Shear Jashub, and he appears there in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, if you look at the footnote there in the church Bibles, I think it's footnote 10 on page 571, and we're told that Shear Jashub means a remnant shall return. The situation is this. Ahaz is king of Judah. Judah is threatened by Rezin king of Syria and Pekah king of Israel. Worried about the threat, Ahaz wants to make an alliance with Assyria. But the Lord tells Isaiah to go to Ahaz and tell him not to, but rather to trust the Lord. From Ahaz's point of view, Syria and Israel represent a major threat. But from a divine perspective, they're ultimately no threat. But when he goes to meet Ahaz, he's to take his son with him, called Shear Jashub. A remnant will return. It's as if I foresaw the destruction of Judah, which would leave a remnant. Negatively, Judah is going to be cut right back. But positively, not totally destroyed, for a remnant will be left. This brings us on to the second son, Emmanuel. God invites Ahaz to ask for a sign to encourage him to trust him. But Ahaz refuses. It's a pious refusal, but there is actually nothing pious about it at all. God had asked him to ask for a sign. And so it was legitimate to do so. Ahaz is not listening to God. 
The reason that he doesn't want a sign is because he's already made up his mind. Well, at that point, a sign is going to be given anyway. This son called Emmanuel. Footnote 3 of the Church Bibles tells us that Emmanuel means God with us. And it's an interesting sign because it's a sign of God's judgment. Well, kind of double-edged, really, because on the one hand, there is a certain deliverance because actually Syria and Israel will be defeated by the Assyrians and therefore no longer be a threat to Judah. But then the same Assyrians, they will go on and conquer Judah. That's what's been said there in verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. That explains why the child will eat curds and honey when he's older. The reason he's going to eat curds and honey is not because he's going to be some royal figure, but because, well, when the land of Judah is laid desolate, that is what is left to eat. See, no longer is there bread and wine from a cultivated land, because it's all been laid bare. Okay, the third child is introduced to us in chapter 8. Let's pick it up from verse 3. And I, as Isaiah, went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call, this, call his name Mahashalahashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So also Isaiah's son, Mahashalahashbaz, means the spoil speeds. The prey hastens. And again, this son is a sign of imminent judgment. In the first instance, it's a sign of God's judgment on Syria and Israel by the Assyrians. But then also the Assyrians will sweep on, verse 8, into Judah and overflow right up to their necks. And this is the thing about human kingdoms. In the end, they turn on one another. I mean, here it's, it's actually thought that the Assyrians' plan was always to go on and plunder Syria, Israel and Judah. The whole lot. And so for Judah to say, oh, let's make an alliance with Assyria... Syria's happy to do that as long as it suits them. Because, well, once then they've conquered Syria and Israel, they're then free to turn on Judah and uh, lay them bare. But from a divine perspective, this is to be understood as God's judgment on the house of David for failing to trust him. Now, there's a striking parallel between Emmanuel and Mahashalahaspaz. Sorry, 
I said it right all the way through, but I'll get it right. A striking parallel between Emmanuel and Mahashala Hashbaz. The relation of the sign to the birth and the naming of the child is the same. And the significance of the signs is the same. And this has led some to conclude that they are the same child. That Emmanuel is Isaiah's son, Mahashalahashbaz. And then you've got the fourth child in chapter 9. Now this child is eschatological. That is to say that the arrival of this child looks forward to the restoration of the Davidic dynasty and the instalment of the Davidic king. This person will not be a king among kings in Israel. Rather, he will be the final king, the king to end all kings. Take a look at verse 7. Speaking of this child, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. It's very clear that this is the picture being painted. This is the coming of the kingdom of God. And this, of course, where it's all heading. It's what we considered last week. Israel was a disobedient son. God's intention was not to destroy Israel, but to restore it. And this would only be achieved when he purifies his people and they are wholly serving a holy God. Now, it's interesting that this son is spoken of not in the future tense, but in what's called the perfect tense. So notice it doesn't say, for to us a child will be born. That would be future tense. But it says, for to us a child is born. It's the perfect tense. Isaiah can look at a future moment and describe its events with the certainty of a completed action. So what we've got are these four children. The first and the third are Isaiah's sons. The second one's a bit more enigmatic. It could well be the second son of Isaiah. And then you've got this eschatological child as the fourth. Okay, happy? So now we're in a position to put it all together. One of the things that's a feature of the prophets is how they talk about both what's happening in the immediate historical setting and how they also talk about what's going to take place at the end. And you see it here. 
So we have Shir Jashub and Mahashalahashbaz, who are historical sons of Isaiah. And then you have the child that's born to us in Isaiah 9 that looks ahead to the coming of the kingdom of God. You've got both immediate, historical, and then what's going to take place at the end. But what then of Emmanuel? Well, we can't put him simply in the future because he's historical. But then certainly Matthew sees that actually Emmanuel is not limited to that historical context because it's this verse that he quotes with regard to the coming of Jesus and the coming kingdom of God. And this has led Christians to thinking that in the case of Emmanuel, we have a double fulfillment. That this sign is fulfilled in the first instance in the historical child in the time of Ahaz. But that sign is not exhausted by that historical child and actually finds fuller fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. And this has also led to actually thinking that this child, Emmanuel, in its fullest sense, is linked to the child of Isaiah 9. That the ultimate fulfilment of the child born of a virgin, who will be called Emmanuel, will be the Davidic king, who will bring about the kingdom of God. And I take it that we're impoverished if we treat Isaiah 7.14 as an isolated verse. Because even if we know that the one born of a virgin is God with us, the question still remains, which God? Who is this God who is with us? Because of our proneness to idolatry, there's a danger that uh, it will be a misrepresentation of him. It will be God, insert the name of your God here, is with us. Whereas the wider context of Isaiah identifies this God, not least as the one who has committed himself to the house of David, who will restore the Davidic dynasty and who will install his king who will rule with justice and righteousness. Let me pray, and then I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, bringing us into your council that we can learn and understand about you. And we thank you that when we come across things that we thought we understood and then we realise that we don't, they become valuable opportunities for us to think again and learn more deeply about your ways. And particularly as we consider this verse that announces the coming of Jesus, he is uh, Emmanuel, uh, God with us, born of a virgin. 
that we would simply not see that as a, a pretext for this being God with us, but a fulfilment of all the things that Isaiah has spoken of. And we pray, please, that you'd help us to, to dwell on these things, that we'd understand the fullness and the significance of um, Emmanuel, that he comes to restore Israel, uh, to be enthroned uh, as your king and establish the house of David uh, forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I mentioned there have been opportunity for questions. Now is that time. You have you guys? Hi, yes, Susie. Yes, I've done that before. Yes. So, yeah, no, no. It's, yeah, at some point, you you just got to bite the bullet and get your head around it. Because either you just think I'm just never going to get my head around Isaiah, and I'm just going to leave it to the. But you know, we need to at some point engage. So you've done pretty well. So um, there's only one extra bit to clarify. So yeah, you basically got so Syria and Assyria are different. Um, so that's worth go. They sound similar, but they're different. So. Syria and Israel, um, they want to attack um, Judah. Um, they won't be successful because Assyria is going to attack them and defeat them. So basically, Assyria is the one that's going to be um, uh, going to attack Syria and Israel. But the thing is, they don't stop there. So don't then go like, oh, we're done now. They're going to then go on and then lay waste uh, and attack Judah. So it's, not, so it's not that Judah particularly fight back. Well, they do fight back it's because Judah makes, an sorry, so Judah makes an alliance with Assyria to say, like, can you help us? So that's why Assyria first attacks um, Syria and Israel. Okay, exactly, because they're just a superpower and they just keep on going. But the, I mean, the discussion with Ahaz is the fact that Ahaz, he's obviously worried by the threat of Israel and Syria, but Isaiah says, actually, in, in the, big, the big scheme of things, you know, we're introduced to God as the, um, his glory fills the whole earth in the vision of Isaiah 6. So actually, they're not a threat so if you trust God, he will deliver you from his enemies. But actually Ahaz thinks he knows better and he would rather make an alliance with Assyria and get help from them. But actually he comes undone because that alliance doesn't last and Assyria then comes. Happy?
good, good spot as well. Again, Ephraim and Israel are saying it's all, it's all, <laughs> it's all just lines of computers. Great. Yes, Nathan. Okay. Yes, so I think, uh, I'm happy to defer to Tom on this if he knows more. I think it is, it's unpacking, it's un, it's unpacking, it's unpacking that, that the judgment that's going to come on Judah is now, um, historically placed in the time of Ahaz in terms of it's going to be for, I mean, it's not going to be the end because Assyria, Obviously, they only go so far, and actually it will be later that the Babylonians will come, and they were the ones that will ultimately flatten um, Judah and then take them off into um, to exile. I think it's the... Um, I think. It, I mean, another interesting... I was going to ask you a question. Another interesting question is, is, why doesn't the call of Isaiah come at the start of Isaiah? Because you have got this almost like one to five sort of sets up some of the themes in terms of what the problem is that Israel is a disobedient son and it's going to be cut back to a stump. But then you've got this, the call of Isaiah, and then you kind of think like, oh, so it feels like, and the commentator says actually the call of Isaiah looks both ways in terms of what's sort of going on. I don't know, does that... Um, Oh, the other interesting thing is, just on that, is interestingly, you know when um, Isaiah, I don't think I'd, I'd clocked this before, you know when Isaiah is told in chapter 6 that to make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, I was thought, like, what do you say for that to happen? Do you deliberately just have a, you know, uh, a message that's incomprehensible? You know, is that the kind of thing? But actually what seems to be happening is Isaiah is faithful to God. He continues to talk about who God is and how we're to respond to him in terms of trust him and not Assyria. And it's, it's precisely that pure word of God that hardens the heart of Ahaz and makes him refusing to trust God and actually do his own thing. So it's interesting that the content of Isaiah is to continue to speak about who God is and what he's doing and about the human condition. But it's precisely that truth which hardens. So it's a little bit like Pharaoh and Moses. It's, it's, you know, Pharaoh was told who God is. It's just that Pharaoh um, was proud and actually thought he knew better. Um, so, yeah. Go on. I think so, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, you said it better than me. Okay. Cool. Time for more. Is everyone happy about Isaiah 7:14? No one wants to go upset that it's kind of it's not what you thought it was. Yeah, okay, so for the recording, um, mentioned that could Isaiah, so Emmanuel be uh, Maha Shalahashbaz, didn't seem to kind of come to conclusive arguments. Um, uh, how important is it, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, probably the important things to be clear about is that in the first instance, Emmanuel was a historical figure at the time of Ahaz. Um, and, and therefore, whether it is Mahashala Hashbaz, um, I think a reasonable case can be made for it. But it is fair to say that Emmanuel is a bit enigmatic, and therefore, you know, apart from just saying the parallel to Emmanuel and Mahashala Hashbaz seem very similar in terms of how they're introduced, what they're a sign of, you kind of think, um, whatever. So, um, but you know whether it whether it is whether it's actually it's another son. Uh, I'm not sure how much difference it makes. I mean, maybe the other comment to make is interesting is how I think it's really clever how language works, and particularly with Emmanuel, the enigmaticness actually serves the double fulfilment. Because no one has asked, but you could ask the question, oh, does that mean that there was another child born of a virgin? We had two miracles. In other words, was Jesus born of a virgin Mary, because she was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Was this other child, was she conceived of a virgin? And interestingly, when you look at the word that's translated virgin in Hebrew, is uh, Alma, I think, actually, it can be both. It can either be a young woman, like a maiden, and she could be a virgin, but she may be, she may not be. So, and this is one of the problems of the translation that we put virgin in. So the commentator says maybe a better translation would be born of a maiden, um, because that actually is nuanced enough to allow both a historical um, context and then also, oh, actually. Jesus was actually born of a virgin because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So there's something about, I think it's quite clever how the language can work that doesn't that actually leaves, leaves those sorts of possibilities together. And so I, I take it with Emmanuel to not have it totally tied to Maha Shalahashbaz 
leaves that open for this double fulfillment because you don't really feel like you've quite pinned him, pinned him down. And it's interesting. I mean, if it was a virgin, as in actually born, like as in the, it's supposed to be a miracle we're used to, I mean, the commentator says that's quite unlikely because um, Isaiah probably would have blown his mind because that's like, hang on, we're looking now for a miraculous birth, but it doesn't seem to be in that vein. It's rather... Um, He's, he's going to be born and actually, um, yep, born of a of a young woman. So I think, I think it's in many ways I want to encourage us to kind of actually enjoy the nuance of language because it helps us to see the depths of this double fulfilment rather than if you have it in a very sort of um, black and white. You know, you have to just kind of go for one or the other. Is that right, Susie? Yeah, cool. Great. All right, leave it there. And we're going to sing when I survey, after which we're going to pray for students and new arrivals.